you've been hearing this everywhere, but I want to encourage you as well. There's some big deal stuff happening this week, probably, right, in our nation? Okay. Here's what I want to say. It is a privilege to live in a country. It's a, it's a blessing from God to live in a country that recognizes in our founding documents that our rights actually come from God. Amen? We have a freedom to gather. We have a freedom to worship. And instead of a king, a monarch, or a dictator, we, the people, have the opportunity to select our representatives. And here's the thing. This only works when, when people participate by being informed citizens and participate in the system. Now, obviously, we're, we're talking voting, um, but it goes even deeper than that. It comes in actually like in being informed and, and getting to know the issues and the candidates. And then for some of you, maybe even taking the big step of serving in public office, running for public office. We've got people in, in our church family that serve on the, like the mayor level and county commissioner and school board. And some of you, I don't think you had to run for it, but you're on the PTA. <laughs> you just stepped up and took one for the team. You serve, you're serving. And, and this is how our nation works. And if we want to preserve the freedoms and the liberties that we have, we need to be involved. And so just encourage you to get involved, most basic level, get involved and vote. And the truth is many people in the evangelical church don't participate. And I think we should change that. All right. So let's dive in and talk about what we are going to talk about here today. Um, we're going to take a little break. We've been preaching through the book of John, and we're going to take a week off. And as, as we we're coming into this week and just praying about it, I felt like God was leading me in a different direction. And so we're going to take a flyby over a whole book of the Bible that I preached through uh, about five years ago. To get there, let me just say, I, I remember the moment that I became a cynic. Um. In my teen years, I had listened to, like, you know, I grew up and I was fascinated. I listened to, like, a 20 tape. Does anybody remember cassette tapes? You're old. Okay. A 20 tape series of the Book of Revelation uh, by MacArthur. It was so complicated and fascinating and everything, like, like all these connections. And it was, like, mind-blowing, right? And I was interested, but I didn't really understand it at that point. And then I remember a couple of years later, I was like 19 or 20, and I got in some, I like stumbled on this teaching, and it was really interesting and really compelling. And there was this guy, and he was like talking about all this stuff, and, and there were like moons and all these things rising, and he had charts, lots of charts, and lots of connections. And the long and the short of it was like, it was like we're heading into the end times, like, we're in the middle of it right now, like the very end of the end times. And the tribulation, I'm like, ah, right? And I remember sitting in my upstairs room in the house and staring at the window and watching a blood moon rise. And it freaked me out a little bit. And then nothing happened. In fact, a, couple, a while later, this guy, to his credit, came back out and apologized because he was completely off base. And then I remember a couple years later when my cynicism was cemented. Um, it was 1999. We were partying like it was 1999. It was New Year's Eve. Actually, we weren't at all. Um, <laughs> me, and, me and a couple of my friends, it's so boring. We were just sitting around on the couch watching Times Square, watching other people party, right? And uh, waiting for the ball to drop. But most of all, 
we were, go, we were sitting there waiting for the countdown in New York to see what's going to happen. Now, kids, if you're like under, I don't know, 25, 30, let me just tell you what happened in the year 2000. Your parents, and especially your grandparents, ask your grandparents. Some of them still have like generators stuck away in their garage. I may or may not have a generator in my garage. Hey, it served me on a job site later, so I, I feel okay about it. So. <laughs> but, um, so here's what happened. Like, you remember the numbers? They click up to 99, like on your, on your stopwatch, on whatever, and then they flip over to zero, right? And they have this moment at Y2K where everybody realized, uh-oh, the computer programmers programmed them to 99, but we didn't think about what happens when we flip back to zero. And so literally, they thought the computer system all around the world was going to short out or something, and everything was going to shut down. And so I remember watching like the countdown, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. Anybody else? Yeah, you're there. And uh, it got to zero, and nothing happened. I mean, like nothing. Like we were at least hoping for like a block or two, the grid to go down, make us feel better about all the food in the basement. <laughs> nothing happened. And that's when I became a cynic, more and more. And <laughs> so, so the joke, like, where, where my, my kind of mind was, all right, I know Jesus is going to come back someday, but all this, like, end time stuff, all this stuff, I don't know. Like, whatever, I'm just going to check out of this whole thing. And my whole reaction for a number of years was just, I'm going to give up on even trying to understand this. In fact, there was a joke going around where people would ask you, like, how do you, uh, you know, what do you think about all this? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm a, I got it from another pastor. I thought it was cool. I'm a pan-millennialist. I think it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> now, there's some, there's some uh, like, good part of that humility, but largely for me, it was a checking out thing, right? Largely for me, it was like, I don't care. I'm not going to actually invest in being engaged in this, in this anymore. And I think for a lot of you, like, I mean, for a whole number of years, I was sort of in this place. Um, but I think a lot of us go there in our hearts in a lot of different areas of our life that when we're disappointed or when we're overwhelmed or when we've been let down, we tend towards one of two extremes. We tend, um, there's a, a famous author named Dr. Henry Cloud, and he talks about this. We tend to go to either underfunction or overfunction. Underfunction is like, whatever. I'm not even going to worry about it. I'm not going to be engaged. And overfunction is like, what if thinking, like, what if, what if, what if, right? Underfunction or overfunction. And Overfunction is when we begin to try to seize control and figure everything out. And uh, like our emotions, just, just all this stress and worry, it's very worry driven. And we try to figure it out and control everything. We become very controlling. And underfunction, we just sort of let go and we check out. Uh, famous, uh, we, we were having a discussion this week with the pastors, and um, one of, Jason has this discipleship group. One of the guys in his group uh, brought up this great illustration um, by a famous preacher. Uh, he's quite elderly now, Dr. Charles Stanley. Probably a lot of you have listened to him over the years. And he had this illustration where he says, we tend to live in what if thinking instead of what now. And I thought that was really good. 
What if versus what now? And for so many, that's where you go. And the problem with what if thinking is you're suffering all sorts of things in the fear of all sorts of things that may or may not actually ever happen, right? Any worriers in there? And you're like, yep, that's me. And see, I think what we do is go to extremes. And so I've got three like things I want you to remember that we're going to really talk about as we go through this today, and that is this. I think we go to extremes. That for most of us, we, we swing between the extremes of what if or whatever. What if or whatever. So there's the three ideas here. The first one is what if thinking. And I think um, so many of us go from there and we swing over to whatever when a wise place to live is this middle question, what now? What now? God, okay, I'm in this situation. God, okay, there's this new information. What do I do with that? I think for a lot of us, you know, you've lived, maybe a, you've lost faith in leaders. Like I think every time around election year, you, you, you think of that, especially as you get older, right? But for some, it's like there's all this stress. There's all this fear involved. And they're, like the over-functioning thing is, well, maybe if we can just get the right people in this time. And like, not just a, like we're going to work and do something here, but there's a lot of anxiety involved in this whole thing for you, a lot of worry. You're in what if, what if, what if, usually at the expense of doing something strategically con constructive, getting involved, right? Doing something. Or you just give up, and I think this is where other people go. It's like, ah, whatever. You just quit being involved at all. You're just cynical. Nothing's going to change. Doesn't really matter. I think a lot of you probably identify with that feeling too. Like even when it comes to our nation, I think there's this easy thing to go into this defeatism of, well, it looks like the whole nation's just sort of, you know, going to hell in a handbasket um, and become cynical. The culture's walking away from God. We're becoming a post-Christian culture. It's inevitable. We like Europe, bunch of empty cathedrals. Or the other side, like the over-functioning side, we're going to put all our faith and confidence in people instead of in the power of God. And I think we just, it's so easy for our hearts to swing from extreme to extreme on this. When it comes to our personal faith, when it comes to our engagement with God, I think it's so easy for us because maybe we've prayed a prayer, we've prayed for a season or for, for a long time, and, and God did not answer in the way we hoped he would answer. He didn't do what we hoped. And so we, we decide, like, the problem like the overfunctioning side goes to the side of, well, the problem must be me. Like if I could just work up more faith, like if I could just pray more and pray better and all these things, I'll get God to do what I want him to do. And, we, and there's all this like stress that gets wound up in it. We start feeling bad about ourselves, all this, and we just like, we spin. It's the overfunctioning thing. Or the other side is we just check out. We throw out a, like a, a little cursory prayer, but we kind of check out when it comes to actually living with an expectation that God is alive and active and wants to move in our lives. We just sort of go on autopilot, whatever, whatever. And we throw up a quick prayer because we know that's what we're supposed to do as good Christians, but we don't have any faith that God's actually going to do for anything. Maybe we're praying for somebody in our family or praying for a healing. And, we're, and by the time, like, before we even pray, we're thinking of the 18 reasons why God isn't going to do this. 18 reasons why God isn't going to come and show up and do this. And that's where our heart goes because 
it's just so easy to be cynical. We lose a childlike trust in God. I remember when my son was four years old, um, there was like, it was supposed to rain, and he was talking to his mom, and, it, and you know, when you're a kid, you love snow. <laughs> and he's like, his mom's telling him it's supposed to rain this week, and he goes, maybe it'll snow. And my wife's like, no, well, it's July. It's probably, you know, it's not going to snow. And he's like, well, maybe it will. It's like, well, it's Colorado, I guess. Like, anything could happen, right? But there's that childlike sense of faith. And I remember how that, like, just impacted my wife of his childlike faith. And then, like, that night, it snowed. Um, Not here in Antarctica, but (laughs) gotcha. (laughs) But the point is his faith, his childlike faith. And we lose that because we just get jaded. And we either swing to the side of trying to control and manipulate and, and just like a stress-driven reaction, all this worry, or we go over to the side of just checking out like, who cares? And I think we do that as a reaction because the world and life oftentimes feels so random and unpredictable, doesn't it? I mean, right now, as we look at our nation, I think there's, there's all kinds of reasons why you might be worried and stressed out. I've been like researching and watching a lot. I mean, I can't remember any time in my lifetime where I've heard the kind of um, high-level talk about, and they made fun of me last night because I said this wrong, nuclear. I said it like George W., nuclear or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> about, about nukes, right? I don't know, how do you even, like, deal with that? (laughs) And then, like, you know, all this talk, high-level talk, I'm watching these, like, major hedge fund managers and stuff, and all these guys are saying, we are on the precipice of probably heading in, like, this next year is, is almost assuredly going to be a rough one financially. Really rough. And you're like, okay, well, what do I do with that? And for so many, it's like, it's either our stress reaction or it's like, ah, whatever, I can't do anything about it. And you just sort of check out. There's lots of reasons why we do that. Now, Jesus, now I'm going to give you one verse that, or two verses we looked at in John last year. Jesus over and over addresses this in different ways. We saw these verses last, last week. He says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. That there is a supernatural peace of God that can and is available to you um, as you stay connected to Jesus. And it's deeper than that. He goes on a little later. He says, I've told you now before it happens. He was going away. He predicts his own death, his own resurrection, and his own ascension, so that when it does happen, you will believe. In other words, I'm going to tell you some things now so that after it happens, I could just do it, but I'm going to tell you now so that when you look back, you're like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what he said, and it happened. And because of that, you can look and you can say, wow, he he did what he said he would do. He's faithful. And because of that, whatever I'm facing, I can trust him that he's still in control. And so what I want to do today is we're going to take a little fly over the book of Daniel. 
Because it's going to illustrate this, that if you're in this place right now where because of the, the randomness of life, your heart has either drifted into this sort of like over-functioning stress or like whatever, or this sort of, um, uh, sorry, that's the under-functioning or whatever, right? The what if, what if, what if, or the whatever, that maybe this would help you center a little bit more, and maybe God would recenter your, your heart on the fact that he is God. He is in control. He oversees the course of history. And so the year is 605 B.C. There's this little nation, Judea. It was a bigger nation. It was a superpower. But almost a 1,000 years ago, a 1,000 years earlier, God had made an incredible promise to a slave nation as he brought them through the desert, as he redeemed them out of Egypt, that they would go into the promised land, the land he promised to Abraham hundreds of years before that. And they, they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And part of the deal was, I am taking you into this land, but your responsibility is to be faithful to this covenant, and if that doesn't happen, you will be exiled out of the land. The northern kingdom splits off. They pursue idolatry. They set up like false gods, they abandon the covenant with God and the northern nation is hauled off well over 100 years before this into exile to the nations. And now you're left with this little nation of Judea, the two tribes, Jerusalem, the temple of God. And man, they have a spotty history for a long time. They like a good king comes along because good leaders are very important. A good king comes along and leads the nation to back to following God. And they, they thrive for a little bit. And then a bad king comes along and, and leads them into idolatry. And before you know it, at the end of the cycle, they have descended so far into idolatry that they are even sacrificing their own children to the God, the idol demon God Molech. Awful as you read through history of what happened. And so God makes good on his promise. And in 605 BC, a new nation is rising to power. It's Babylon. And at the Battle of Carchemish, Babylon takes on the armies of Egypt and Assyria and defeats them and then chases uh, Egypt all the way back down. (laughs) They chase these guys all the way back down under Sinai. And uh, they pursue the fleeing army. And then probably on the way back from that, they stop by Israel, and they lay siege to Israel, or to Judah. And this is where we drop into the story. It says this in in Daniel 1.1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, those he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, the god Marduk. And they would take all, as they conquered nations, they would go into their temples, they would take their idols and bring them in, and then they would set them up in their God's temple to show how much greater their God is because they're conquering the world. Well, they came into the temple in Israel. They couldn't find an image because God says, you shall make no image. He didn't want them into idolatry. So they're like, well, I don't know. We'll take some of these things that are used in, in the sacrifices. And they take that and put it in their temple. And then, um, let's see. And then it says, then the king ordered Ashenaz, the, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and, and the nobility. So at this point, they come and they haul off 
a whole bunch of the, the nation of Israel, the best and the brightest in 605 BC. And from that group then, he says, I want you to select Verse four, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them with a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Babylon you, three years. They would be taught all uh, things that were just so foreign to them and abhorrent to them. So as they worshiped the one true God, many of these young men, they would be brought in and they'd be taught spells and omens and how to like astrology and all this Babylonian learning and language and culture and all this. They were trying to take the best and the brightest and make them into good Babylonian citizens. And verse six says, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. So they have names that honor Yahweh, the one true God, and he gives them new names that honor the demon false gods of the Babylon. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And you know them probably, you remember their name from Veggie Tales. Yeah, there's the vegetables that got in the fiery furnace. Anyway. This, just let me point out, this is not a great start to this, to their life story. This was not their idea of like homecoming, high school homecoming. These guys were, this isn't how the, the year was supposed to go. They had plans for their lives. They had trajectories. They probably had like girlfriends they were betrothed to and all this, and they were looking forward to getting married and having kids. And instead, they get hauled off. They walk for months through the desert, probably chained, as they lead them up. And as they approach Babylon, they see this massive city, 60 miles long, 100-foot-tall um, walls, 80 to 90 feet thick, and numerous temples in the background. It was a wonder of the world, but it was so far from home. And so intimidating. And they're going to be put through a three-year program of indoctrination. And notice the, the values of Babylon. What are they looking for? We want the young men, perfect physical specimens, handsome, smart, the best and the brightest. The values of Babylon. And all throughout the Bible, you see this, this idea of the Babylon system representing the system of the world versus the system of God and his kingdom. It's a constant theme all the way back that starts at the Tower of Babel. <laughs> the idea is here, the Babylon system versus following God. It's look at what I've accomplished by my strength and my power versus look at what God has done. It's let me build my kingdom versus seek God's kingdom first. And these guys are thrown into the midst of that. But in verse 8, it says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Which I find so interesting because at this point, on my heart, I think, talk about a massive disappointment. You're, you're, you're in your high school years, likely um, teenage years, and you get literally kidnapped from your home. Your, your home is completely wiped out, and you're in this new culture. And even a lot, lot of... Uh, 
A lot of prominent scholars, because when people would enter the service of the king, um, it was a very intimidating people, especially these wise men and astrologers and things. Um, a lot of prominent scholars think they, were, they likely made them eunuchs. And if you don't know what that is, you can ask your parents or look it up at home. Hashtag ouch. Okay. Their lives are completely turned upside down. I think my heart in this moment is going to whatever. Like you've been through the what if, what if, what if as they take you off and all of a sudden you, you're now in this new place and you know what's going on and, and you have no power. You're a little ant in this massive system. I think my heart at that point is going to whatever. What does it even matter anymore? What, God, let me, God let me down. I mean, he, can you imagine being in that situation, what Daniel and his friends are feeling? And yet, even in there, Daniel says, I'm going to honor God to the best of my ability. I'm going to honor God. And we have the laws that God gave us regarding food, and I'm not going to take the king's food from his table. I'm going to honor God with my life. He doesn't go to whatever. He says, what now? Look at this. And so he asks, um, he, he gets the guy who's in charge of them, and he says, hey, um, my friends and I, like, we have this value, and we want to honor God with our lives. Can we just let us, uh, I've heard of this great diet going around on the internet. It's called the Daniel Fast. Uh, let's try it. I think it's going to work really well. You guys are asleep. <laughs> Sorry. I thought it was funny. You didn't, but... Uh, Just give us, but listen to what Daniel asks. He says, please test your service, servants for 10 days. What now? Well, because the guy says, no, I can't let you do that. You're, you guys are going to look awful, and you're supposed to like be the best. When you guys don't look as good as all these other dudes, um, I'm going to get my head chopped off. So sorry. And he says, well, just give us a test for 10 days. The wisdom, the humility. He's not like throwing a fit, not throwing a protest. He's like, hey, just let me try it 10 days. Let me try it. And God steps in and it's truly a supernatural thing. So I don't want to hear all the vegetarian arguments because I really love my barbecue. Okay. So it's a God thing. So let me just throw that out there. <laughs> it's a God thing because uh, there's something about these guys and God puts his hand of favor on them. And finally, when they're presented before the king, here's what it says. In every matter, verse 20, of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the, the first year of King Cyrus. So he's found to be these guys, God's hand of favor is on them. But what does that mean? He remains there in the king's service till the first year of King Cyrus. That's 539 B.C. That's 66 years. Very likely, by the time, like Daniel's whole life from his teenage years is in a foreign country serving a foreign king in a pagan environment that is not what he hoped for. And yet he's faithful to God. And you see this over and over again in his life. He's faithful to God. Remember the lion's den one? They say, you can't pray to another God. He's like, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. And they set it up as a trap. And God comes through and God rescues him. 
the Dan, his friends, I think Daniel was at like the summer home or something, but Daniel's friends, Shad, Mish, and uh, Abendo, Abendigo, they're in the fiery furnace. God shows up and they tell him, we're, we're not going to bow down and serve you, King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sorry, we can't do that. They don't dishonor him, but they say, we can't do that. And they say, God's going to come through. He will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, that's faith. You want to know what real faith looks like? It's like, I trust that God, you're going to come through. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship you. And God, these guys just, they're faithful. And Daniel is faithful. And a little later, he begins to see and God begins to open the bigger purpose up to him of of his bigger purposes in life because God's going to use him in an incredible way when it comes to prophecy and understanding God's hand, God's sovereign hand throughout history. And so a little while later, as Daniel's in this process of, of training, um, the, king has a, uh, the king has a crazy dream. Like he ate a lot of really bad pizza the night before and a lot of like Italian sausage and stuff. It's not in the Bible. I'm making that up. But anyway, but he has, he has pizza the night before or whatever, and he has a crazy dream that night. But it's not like... It's one of those dreams that he wakes up and he knows, like, this must be about me. It's like this giant statue and it's got a head of, like, gold and then, sh- like, shoulders of, of uh, silver and the torso is of bronze and the hips and then the legs are of iron and it goes down in the feet of, like, iron mixed with clay and then this unhuman, like, uncarved stone comes out and flies out and it... Uh, crushes and explodes the statue and then this like stone grows into this giant mountain and he's freaked out because he knows somehow this is about me and so like dream interpretation was a really big thing in the ancient world and so he calls in all of his guys and here's what he says to him in in chapter 2 verse 3 he says i had i have had a dream he calls in all these wise guys he says, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And the guys are like, cool. It says, then verse 4, it says, then the astrologers answers the king. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream. We will interpret it. No problem. We've got books. We've got manuals. Just tell us the dream, and, man, we'll, we'll give you the explanation. You got it, king. And the king replied, check this guy out. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Now, this was not an idle threat. Um, Jeremiah shows us a little bit about the character of this guy. And uh, parents, this is a little PG-13, so you might want to cover your kid's ears. But uh, at one point, he, uh, he puts two guys on a stick. Yeah, don't think about that too much. And then roast them alive over a fire. Another time, he brings out this king that he conquers, and he lines up his entire family and slits their throats in front of him, gouges out the king's eyes so that was the last thing he saw, and then takes him back to live in his palace, like in his jail, sort of as his little toy for the rest of his life. Isn't that crazy? Like this guy's character. So they know this is not an idle threat. And the astrologers, they said they answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. 
No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. Like, this is unheard of around the world. We have books, but, but we can't do this. Verse 11, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And listen, what they, he says, they don't live among humans. Like, we know we serve and we, we worship these idols, these demon idol gods, but they don't live among us. They're not, there's no relationship here. We can't do what you're asking. And I find it interesting that the most powerful man in the world in this moment realizes that his, the Babylon system, the world system, can't give him what he wants and needs. And that's a very powerful realization for him. It'll take him a long time to get it. And so they go out to, uh, to go arrest all the wise men and astrologers, and they're going to put them to death. That was the order. The king's so angry. And they come to Daniel's house because he's in this group, him and his friends. And they're going to be hauled off and murdered along with all these other guys. And Daniel um, asks like, the guy, what's going on? He tells him the story. And it says in verse 16, at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time. See, again, it would be so easy just to check out. I, I mean, in that moment, my, I know where my heart would be like, ah, what if, what if, what if, like, how do we get out of this? Or just whatever. Like, what can you do in that situation? But see, Daniel has an expectation that he serves a God who is alive and active and speaks and he knows, I, I just need a little bit of time so I can seek my God. Look what he does. He goes in and he says, what now? And the what now for him was to go in and, and say, just give me, King, you want your dream interpreted, right? Okay, I think I can help you. Give us a little bit of time. And so he goes back and uh, he, he says he returns to the house. He explained the matters to his friends. Verse 18, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Like their only hope was God. The only hope was God. And yet his first step in this moment is to go to God in prayer. I think so often our first step is to go to the worry, the what if, what if, what if, to stress about it for a month or two or three and finally get around to coming to God and going, okay, I don't have the answer. Or our first step is just be overwhelmed and just check out and go, whatever. They go to God in prayer. They plead with God, like fervent prayer. God, we know you're alive and active. They go to God with the expectation that there's a God who's alive and active, who cares about them and can move in their situation. And that's exactly what God does. He he gives Daniel the dream, like literally like plants it in his mind that night. And then he do, he's like, wakes up and like, ah, yeah. And uh, he knows it's from God. There's no other explanation. And so he, he says, take me to the king. And he shows up in front of the king. And the king's like, you got an interpretation for me? And he, Daniel's like so confident. He's like, I've got it. Because when God shows up like that, you have confidence, don't you? You have confidence. And Daniel, he's like, so you can interpret the dream. You can tell me my dream. And Daniel replies to him in verse 27 of chapter 2. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in these days to come. 
And he goes on to describe exactly what the king saw in his dream. And the king's jaw hits the floor. But God doesn't just show him the dream. He gives him the interpretation. And here's the interpretation. There's going to be four kingdoms. Oh, king, yours is great and mighty. You're the head of gold. And after you, there's going to be three other kingdoms, great kingdoms, that will overcome the world. But in the midst of that, verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. There's going to be kingdoms that rise and kingdoms that fall, but God wins. That's the heart of the interpretation. And and many years later, Daniel has had this experience. And many years later, God actually gives him another profound dream with many more details. It comes in chapter 7. And as Daniel's asleep, he sees this vision of these crazy beasts. And he sees a lion kind of beast and like a leopard kind of beast. All these crazy beasts and a bear, right? And it represents these different kingdoms. And then finally he sees this crazy beast that he can barely, ferocious, freaky thing. Anybody have some dreams like that? Like, some of you are so funny. You're like, my wife, she remembers your dreams almost every, every day and she'll tell me. And, and I'm like, you know, a couple times a year, I remember a freaky one. Um, and it's always so interesting. <laughs> some of you, you have crazy dreams all the time. But Daniel has this one and he knows this is, this is from God and it's really disturbing. And so in his dream, he actually walks up to an angelic being and asks him, like, what does this all mean? Because there's this crazy fourth beast, and it's got ten horns and a little horn and speaking boastful things. And then in the midst of that, the heavenly court takes its seat, and this angelic figure in the dream tells him what it means. It says, and I'm going to skip to verse 17. He says, the four great beasts are the four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Amen. In other words, kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall. See, in his dream, now Daniel at this point, he's like, awesome. I want more info. Isn't that us too, all the time? That's great. Thanks for the interpretation. Now, what about the fourth one? Like, God was freaky. Tell me more. And that's the one that, that scholars and historians have been arguing about for, for hundreds of years now. And we don't have time to get into it all today. But the heart of it is there's going to be these four kingdoms. And I'll tell you what, here's the amazing thing. In this dream, he sees one who is, who is like a son of man. Anybody recognize that phrase? approaching God and receiving glory and honor. In fact, let's go back to 13 for a second. One who is like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And you know the remarkable thing? God lays out hundreds of years of human history. Hundreds of years. To Daniel. There's four kingdoms. And Daniel actually lives long enough to see the transition to the next one. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're hot stuff right now. But you're going to go by the wayside in history. 
And as you look at history, these four great kingdoms, um, scholars, have they studied this, it's so clear and it's so remarkable because hundreds and hundreds of years before this happened, God gives Daniel this vision. And, and Babylon, represented by the lion, in fact, still in ancient runes, you see all these lions, right? Babylon, the great kingdom, and then the Medes and the Persians come in and they take over. The, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, massive kingdom goes throughout the earth. They roll for a couple hundred years. And then with like the speed that scholars still look and don't, they have no idea how this happened in history. Well, God said it would happen. Alexander the Great comes in and takes over in like an incredibly short period of time. Some of the battles were nothing but miraculous that he won with smaller forces. And the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the Greek, um, Macedonian Greek kingdom spreads all over the world and takes over the world. And they rule until it begins to split off into different kingdoms. Again, God gives later a very specific detailed prophecy about that. It's amazing in Daniel. And then the fourth kingdom rises, the kingdom of iron, a fierce kingdom. It's different than all the other kingdoms. And Rome arises, and the world's never seen anything like it. In the early days, Rome was a republic and then turned into an empire with, uh, with dictators, right? The Caesars. And, and it says they just devour the world. If you've seen a picture of the Roman Empire, the world had never seen anything. It stretched all the way up to Britain and all the way across to India and all the way across to Africa. Literally, the whole civilized world that they thought of the time as like the civilized world was taken over by Rome. John Calvin, a famous reformer, said this. He says, therefore, Rome ruled supremely so long, so widely, they fulfilled this prophecy by devouring the whole earth for such lust for dominion never existed before. Wars heaped upon wars. They were alike greedy of the blood of others and by no means sparing of their own. And the, what Daniel lays out hundreds of years before knowing, even the Iron Kingdom and the split, I mean, if you've studied the Roman Empire, the East and the West, and, and then all of that and the division, it's crazy. 900 years before the world would really understand the Roman Empire, God lays this out to Daniel. He tells them, Kingdoms will rise, kingdoms will fall, but in the midst of those kings, one will come who will initiate a kingdom that will grow and become a mountain that will fill the world. And you know what's interesting? Later in his life, in his 80s, probably, Daniel has another vision. It's one of the most famous because he realizes the time that God prophesied that the nation would be released had come, 70 years. And he pleads with God. I mean, he's at, in his 80s, he's still engaged. He's, he's not checked out. He's not like, whatever, let the younger guys handle it. He's praying. He's fasting. He's pleading with God. God, you promised you're going to bring our nation back to our land and bring us out of exile. It's that time now, and I'm still alive to see it. And God gives him a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And I don't have time to get to it today. But let me just tell you, amazing prophecy that scholars have said that 483 years after a decree would come Messiah. 
and that he would be cut off. They didn't understand it. But they were expecting it. The expectation of Messiah around the time of Jesus. Guess what? When the 483, guess when the 483 years comes to? Exactly to the time of Jesus. In fact, some scholars calculate it like exactly when Jesus rides in on the donkey, the triumphal entry. It's amazing. I've done the spreadsheet. It's nerdy, and it's amazing. <laughs> and the Messiah is cut off for the sins. It says he would be cut off, but not for himself. And God reveals this 539 years before Jesus was born. And you know what? Here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus came, and Jesus says, my, the kingdom has come near. I'm initiating my kingdom. When I return, it will come in fullness. But in the meantime, it grows and grows, and you and I are part of God's kingdom as we worship and serve God. And guess what? Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Every one of these empires has risen and fallen. But Jesus, church, you are here thousands of years later. And on this day, a couple billion people around the planet identify with the name of Jesus. Kingdoms will rise. Kingdoms will fall. In the end, God wins. And that's really good news because in the midst of whatever you're facing, and all that what if, what if, what if, the message is you can trust him. You can trust him. I'm going to invite Winston up. And we're going we're gonna to close uh, here. He's, he's going to play. And what I just want to challenge you with today, <laughs> Jesus said that peace is available to you. It's not a peace that says check out. No, Daniel stayed engaged. Daniel got involved. Daniel asked what now? That's the thing you see consistently. What now? I'm not going to live in the what if, what if, thinking I can control everything myself. I'm not going to check out and say whatever. I'm going to live in what now? What's your what now in the thing you're facing? Maybe that's a, a relationship thing. Maybe are you over-functioning or are you, have you given up? Is there an area where God is asking you to inquire what now? I want to ask a, that new song we sang this morning. Can you just do the course of that one time? That was so powerful. I'm throwing something on him, so give him some slack. Is there an area where, where God is inquire, asking you to inquire of him? What now, God? Maybe that's something. Maybe it's a, a family member in your life who's walked away from God, and, and you're just trying, and you're struggling and stressing. Or somebody that's estranged out of your life right now, and you just need to ask, what now, God? I want to give this over to you. I want to experience your peace, but I don't want to just check out. Maybe you got a relationship in your life. You're just so worried. Maybe it's for you, it's like all the stress of things on a national level, and, and, and it's more than just being active and involved. Like, you're obsessive about it. You need to give it over to God. You need to say, okay, what can I actually do right now that makes a difference, God? What would, how would you have me move? How would you have me give this over to you? I want to experience your peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding. Would you stand? 
You know, maybe some of you, you've got a relationship in your life where you're trying to control everything and it's causing you incredible stress. Maybe for you, the what now is giving that over to God and just saying, okay, I'm going to just pray. I'm not going to give up. Maybe some of you, there's a situation in your life. You, you're asking God to move in this situation and you need him to. But your temptation is to check out and go, oh, whatever. I've asked Maybe God wants you to pursue prayer again. As we sing this song, I'm going to just invite you, just this this course a couple of times, to take whatever that is to him. Ask him what now. Lord, and I just lift up uh, my friends here. I know in a room this size, there's many that, that just have that tension inside right now that really need a touch from you. They need to give that over to you. And you say, God, you have been sovereign in control of nations. As we look back at that, what we know is you are in control. And so, Lord, we're not going to check out and go into whatever. We're going to engage. We're going to pray. We're going to seek you earnestly. We're going to ask how you want us to walk through this life for the sake of your kingdom and the good of those around us, Lord but we're not going to take it all upon ourselves. We're going to trust you. Lord, we love you. Pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.